Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Matt Gooden, co-founder of Who, What, Why. Matt, who is frequently mistaken for that rock star whose name you can't remember, teamed up with Ben Walker and Sean Thompson to create the agency as a means of finding a new challenge in life, which by all accounts, it has been. So what's, uh, what's happened for you personally since March when all the shutters came down? Well, we've, I mean, we've just, we've been working all right, to be honest. You know, it's been pretty good, been hectic. We didn't furlough anyone. And um, yeah, we just kept everyone together and we've won up quite, you know, picked up quite a bit of new beers. So been pretty mental. All good. Good, good. Yeah. Well, uh, that's how today is. Um, and usually I like to start these things by uh, going back to what got you into the game and, you know, what caused yeah. you to become a creative. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I left school as soon as I could when I was about 16. I hated school and went to art college and studied uh, graphic design for a couple of years and Part of that course was um, to, you know, was focused on advertising for a couple of months. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I went to see a guy at BBH who was um, just, he just shot a Levi's commercial and he showed me what he'd done and everything. I thought, fucking hell, that sounds like a, looks like a pretty interesting thing to do. So, yeah, that's, and then I went from, you know, doing, studying graphic design to advertising at Hounslow and that was that. I did almost choose underwater photography at Plymouth. It was a bit of a 50-50. <laughs> so I don't know what my my life would have ended up like if I'd have taken that path. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's not it's, it's not, not nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the kind of coin flip that a lot of people face, is it? Underwater versus above the line. But yeah, no, it's a weird one. I think really, I, I don't know. I do like thinking of just. I really love thinking of ideas, and I always have done and. You know, and then you get to play with all the sort of different creative disciplines of filmmaking and design and what have you. Yeah, it's good. That's interesting that because one of the things I like to ask um, creatives who've been in the game a long time, um, you know, you're a good example of that, is what is the argument for young creative people and young artistic people as to why they should get into advertising? Because I don't think it's seen as, as cool as it was when you got into it. No, totally not. I mean, when we start, when we got into it, the, the advertising was just so amazing and funny and interesting and, you know, very, very creative. And it was, you know, it's always been the best in the world, really. But yeah, at the moment, I think there's other things that are just far more interesting as creative indus- industries, you know. So it's just really lost its appeal for young people. And it is a shame because. You know, maybe they just don't, they're not exposed to the, all the sort of things that you do get to play with, you know. And we, I think at Who, What, Why, we are going to try and do something about that and, you know, start getting into some colleges and, you know, showing kids what, what a career you could have because it is fantastic. Yeah, that sounds really, uh, definitely sounds encouraging. Um, yeah. But you mentioned that there are other more interesting creative disciplines to be getting into. What, you know, what comes to mind when you say that? Well, I think sort of, I don't know, if I was a creative kid now, I'd probably be looking at game design or, you know, 
you know, not so much advertising, but definitely sort of digital design stuff, I guess. But I, wouldn't, I don't think, I think because advertising isn't that good at the moment, you know, just what's out there is, is, doesn't draw you in. So, yeah. And so you're saying back in, uh, I hate to say back in the day, but back in the day, you know, was the ca- back in, back in it, long, <laughs> long time ago, yeah. What kind back of cool stuff was... <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what kind of cool stuff was drawing you in? Are we thinking eighties, nineties? Yeah, sort of nineties, really. I mean, it was really great. I mean, we caught the back end of some of the great Carling ads and beer commercials. Carling was it Carling Heineken Stella, and then all the Levi stuff was pretty amazing that they was doing then. You know, always used lovely music and built a brilliant brand out of music. That, that, of that era, you know, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what do you think is happening at the moment? Do you think it's like, uh, what I hear a lot of people saying is there's been a kind of race to the bottom over the last 20 years because uh, the digital side of things, the cheap advertising solutions you can do on social media mean uh, clients are often drawn to think, why spend tens of millions on an above-the-line campaign when we can just put all of our stuff on on the digital. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that has, has something to do with it. But, you know, even if it, you know, an idea doesn't have to cost a lot of money to be brilliant, you know, I think you know, in a way it can force you to be more creative when you haven't got the budget to play with. But I don't know, I guess, you know, 25, 30 years ago, there was a, the whole focus was on film and TV, really, and some and print, which is very, very simple. And then I guess that had a focus creatively, and clients realised that they had to cut through, so they pushed boundaries within those mediums, you know. So, and now it's much, much more diverse, you know, the way that brands can communicate, and maybe there isn't the focus or the willing the need so much to. I don't know, to, to really desire that creativity. Or maybe people are just a bit safer. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in times where there's this expanding domain of possibilities, um, yeah. it could be seen as a good time not to rock the boat, maybe. Uh, but, um, but, but it is definitely, um, that it is definitely a trend. I see a lot of people uh, talking about and saying, I don't know quite what to do about it going from here. Uh, but one thing that is common is people say that the, uh, what would you say, the influence, the decision-making influence is more on the client side than it is on the agency side than, uh, yeah. than it was. was. Yeah, I agree. Also, I wonder how many, like with the big sort of brand managers, marketing guys in these companies, whether they're really vested in growing the brand long term, or whether it's just a quick turnaround, don't fuck up, deliver the figures in two years, and then move on to another another brand. And I think there's a lot of that going on. I think, you know, I don't know so much, you know, some of the brands that we work with most, they've got much more, they're much more thinking long-term about how to build a brand. And I think really good advertising does do that. Yeah. yeah. I spoke to um, Ben Kay recently who suggested that one of the reasons 
that now in 2020, Guinness is not seen as an old man's weird drink is because uh, they did so much long-term brand building in the late 90s. Yeah, totally, totally. It sets, it, it, you know, it can totally set a brand up for the future. You know, the sort of lower pack work that we did, I don't know, was it 15 years ago, it's still kind of rolling now. And, you know, God, you know, I, get, I guess at the time they just didn't realise that that could happen. You know, but that's really, um, you know, it's almost bulletproof, that brand. Yeah. Was set up there. Yeah, and it's a weird thing to consider from, you know, not not the agency and creative side, but from the consumer side, the fact that there's such a strong brand associated with uh, a fairly generic pack of spreadable butter, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But that's the power of advertising. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So when you say Lurpak, was that when you were at uh, Wyden? Wyden Kennedy, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So tell us about how you got into that creative shop and what it was like being there, because a lot of people speak very fondly of their time at Wyden and Kennedy. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we, I mean, when we first got into the business, we, it was there was a bad recession. I think it was sort of early nineties, and I think we, I don't think we actually finished our college course because we was always out going to see people in the industry and. And I think we got offered a, a job before we finished our course. So we just took it because it was a tough time. And, you know, some of my friends on that course didn't work for two years after they left. So it was, it was a pretty tough time. So we got we got in at um, Leo Burnett. We stayed there for about six years. Found it difficult to get out because we was, was making a lot of shit and... But we did learn a lot, you know. I think we ended up getting fired, which got us out. <laughs> so, so from there we went to Simon's Palmer, uh, Clemo Johnson, which was a pretty cool little place at the time. Amazing bunch of people that ran that, and all went their separate ways and did amazing things. And then they merged with TBWA, so we ended up there with Trevor. Did about four years there, and then we went into Wyden Kennedy which we spent about 10 years at. But Wyden's at that point was absolutely mental. It was so hectic and crazy. And, you know, the music was so loud every day. You could like, hardly hear yourself think. And, you know, the, the MD, she's an Aussie girl. She's great. Amy Smith, she had a drum kit in the reception. She used to play the drums. And it was just insane. But it was a great vibe and really good energy. And the work was amazing, you know, that Tony and Kim, you know, managed to pull out of there. You know, they certainly created something. Uh, yeah, so we were, um, I know that we were keen to talk about uh, some more of the Honda work because obviously I did, um, uh, I spoke to Sean on one of these and we talked about uh, Gur and Impossible Dream. But I know you were quite instrumental in the Civic Choir film, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we did that. I mean, that's a pretty interesting process. I've got the one of the, books here. I can take some photographs of you, but this is one of the, you know, it's got all the notation and that. Wow. Everything, every part of the car, you know, and how the commercial went and the notes which each uh, singer had to perform. And yeah, I can't read music, so I have no idea. I guess you guys find it quite interesting. Yeah. So you got, yeah, start and rev, gravel drive, passing car, you know, into a tunnel, Sunroof, all of it. Yeah. Quite cool. Should we um, should we take a look at the final film and see how it turned out? 
Yeah, sure. Let's do that. This is what a Honda feels like. Yeah, I've seen that for a while. Brilliant. And um, that the main thing that immediately sticks out for me is um, wanting to see the behind the wizard's curtain. I'm like, surely there must have been some actual external sound design in that, but that was all the choir. Yeah, it was done for real. That we we mic'd up the car from every possibility and recorded tons, every single possible sound on the car, and then. And then back in the studio, you sort of break that down into the sound frequencies that go to make up a certain sound and then get see if humans can replicate those. So that was a sort of process and a lot of experimenting, but it's quite good fun. It is shot beautifully. That's Antoine Bardin-Jacquet again, who shot Colb and some of our lower pack stuff. But I don't know. Overall, I think it's a little bit pompous, as an, maybe as an idea. You sort of go, it's... A, it's I don't know, Honda always felt that it should be a little bit more light-hearted in a way, and I don't know if we quite got that humour out of it. But yeah. yeah. So is that where you'd say something like the impossible dream, while it's grand, there's also a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing to it? Yeah, that is a brilliant film. That. I absolutely love that film. That is just fantastic. Yeah. yeah really... were, you, were you not on that one? No, that was Sean, yeah. Yeah. But between... You know, me, Ben, and Sean, we, we managed to produce some pretty cool Honda stuff, yeah. So are you three the uh, the creative directors who were responsible for, again, the long-term brand building for Honda, turning that into a cool brand? Yeah, well, really, I mean, Tony and Kim, I mean, they were the, the ECDs there, and they really pushed it, you know. But, they, you know, the top guy there, Ken Kier, he's a prime example of a client, you know, we work with the, the day-to-day marketing guys and, we, you know, some of the times that we had, we'd literally have six months to develop 
you know, a, a campaign, which you don't get the luxury of that anymore. And, you know, it would go right through the guys that we work with every week at Honda. And then it would go to Ken Keir, the top guy, just as a final tick, right? And sometimes he turned around and he went, it doesn't scare me enough. Go and write something different. Wow. And you just go, you know, because he really understood, the, you know, the, the power of a piece of work that would really break boundaries and cut through. You know, and I think true to the idea of the power of dreams, he, you know, an idea that he would buy would be something like, right, I've no idea how you're going to make that, so go and make it. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. Honda Cog, you, you presented that to him and he went, go on then, go and make that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, like, we're, we're going to do an actual working Rube Goldberg machine that isn't CGI. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And that was well, all real, was it, Cog? Yeah. 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 It had one join in the middle because we couldn't get a studio big enough to <laughs> get the whole thing up. But, um, yeah. Amazing. And so, is that that's the kind of uh, courage you aren't seeing at the moment from yeah. clients to say, let's stick our necks out and do something that's completely wrong and completely uh, unheard of. Yeah, well, I don't, to me, I don't think that's risky at all. It's more risky to be safe because the whole point of advertising is to stand out, isn't it? You know, it's like whatever everyone else is doing, don't just do something different. You know? Yeah, if you're that's just stood on the same soapbox saying the same words. Yeah, no point, it's a waste of money, you know, and it, you know, that's why we talk a lot of who, what, why about breaking rules. You know, I think all work should always do that. Otherwise, it's kind of, it just means you're going to have to spend a lot more on media to get impact. If you're really? Not yeah. You know, with Honda Cog, that, I think that only aired once. And we, and we produced a load of DVDs when DVDs were still a, a thing, <laughs> amazingly. <laughs> and we stuck, uh, DVDs on the front of the Guardian and gave it away as a freebie, and and then I think it aired once or twice as a film, and that was it. Yeah. So it's pretty. They didn't spend hardly any on media. I think it was about a million quid to produce the thing, but you know, it just obviously got huge impact for them, and still does actually. Well, that's the uh, the famous sort of uh, what would you call it? The famous soundbite about the Apple 1984 commercial is that it only aired once. Yeah, that's it. This is great. I never thought about it that way. I've never thought about the idea that a solid, uh, impressive, creative idea can actually save your media spend. Because I always, I mean, I say always, I've only been in the industry for three years. Um, yeah. It's been my understanding that, oh, you spend 50p on the production and then you spend a tenner on the media. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it should be the other way around. We'd like it to be the other way around, and that's what you guys are trying to do at Who, What, Why. So talk to me about when did this alchemy become clear that, you know, you, Sean, and Ben were uh, a good team to start a new agency, and why the hell would you do something as stupid as start a new agency? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've, I mean, me and Ben, we've worked with Sean for 20-odd years. So, you know, he was at Simon's Palmer when we joined there, and him and his partner, Ros, me and Ben joined, we sat in this office and for three months, we just heard Sean and Ros arguing, right, in the office next door, it had thin little petition walls. 
and they never came out of their office. And after about three months, Sean came out and went, oh, hello, I'm Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, and then, you know, so we worked with them there and then we worked with them all, worked with Sean all the way through, really. He's always been, a, he's always been around and shares such similar standards to us. And that's why, you know, it was always going to work, you know. And did you guys all move across to Widen and Kennedy at the same time, or did you mix and match and then come back together? Uh, do you know what? I think Sean came... I can't remember if Sean was there before us or after, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. But yeah. And then when did the conversation happen where you all got together and said, let's do this, let's make our own our own outfit? Uh, I think... So Sean, he spent about eight years in Amsterdam, and he came back from there, and I think we'd just been made redundant from Crispin Porter, fired, whatever. Yeah. So you, you were the exec creative at Crispin Porter? Yeah. Yeah, me and Ben, yeah. So, yeah, it was just a bit of timing. I think we bumped into him in the street and was like, oh, wow, we're back from Amsterdam. And then he was doing a bit of freelance at Rainy Kelly uh, on a big pitch and he pulled me into that and I worked with him on that. And then... We, started saying, you know, we've really got to do our own thing. And, yeah, we just had enough sort of dough in the bank and a bit of a window to get it going, both of us. So I guess that was the timing was right. And, you know, we really didn't know what we was doing when we sort of started. It was literally sit in a room. We rented a little room off of a photographer, mate, that we, we know in his studio. And, yeah, just sat there and went, Right, what do we do? <laughs> you know, so it's like, right, register the name, get a bank account, set the website up, start phoning people, you know, client contacts and saying this, we're here. And, you know, it sort of went from there, really. And that was it, in at the deep end, learning to be accounts and sales as well as creatives going, right, who's got the brief? I need to do some work. Yeah, exactly. And then Marissa, Sean's missus, you know, she is a lot more business savvy than us three. So, again, she was in it from the start, really, and making sure that everything was set up right. And, you know, we had insurance and all the things that you don't think about, you know, when you start something like this. So we couldn't have done it without her, to be honest. No, I sensed when I came and visited you guys that Marissa was um, the, the thing that makes makes the machine work, you know, makes it all go. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she says something brilliant actually because you got I don't, who did those caricatures? There's three caricatures of you, uh, you Ben and, and Sean. Yeah, I think it was Rebecca, one of our girls' friends. Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, and um, I said to Marissa, I was like, "You've got these three, but where's your caricature?" And she goes, "Well, it's who, what, why, not how much." <laughs> I love that. That's a good quote. And I thought she should put that on her office. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. On the um what like on the work side of things at Who What Why, um, what was the when did stuff start rolling in and what's the thing you've done that you've been proudest of? I mean, to be honest, the I mean, creatively, it's I mean it's been a mad, huge struggle and hard work to get going. It really has. And you know, it's you know, to, to really sort of pick up a piece of business that made a difference. It was Skybet, you know, and that 
came through our previous relationship with the guys who used to work at Paddy Power and they moved to Skybet. So, you know, and then they got, they, you know, we got the opportunity to pitch for that piece of business. And that is the one thing that really got us going as a business because it was a proper retained ongoing account. You know, and Ben's all over it. You know, he loves his sport and betting. So that's why we're, we're really sort of, um, you know, we know our stuff when it comes to that sort of category. So that was the one thing that really got us going. And I guess creatively, I don't know. I think, you know, I love the actual filmmaking of Gift Gaff was great because Shirley shot that and that was fantastic and it was a lovely film. So that was pretty cool. And then recently the Spotify work has been going down very well, picking up lots of awards. So, yeah, pretty proud of that. Does that feel like um, the with the Spotify thing, is that a um, passing of the sort of baton moment? Because be- as far as I'm aware, it's your uh, creatives. Um, I, yeah, I believe yeah. they're called Ali and Matt, is it? Jack and Ali, yeah. Jack. I always get that Jack. wrong. Yeah, and so great. they wrote the copy, did they? Yeah, no, I had nothing to do with it, to be honest, but I'm still proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> proud that it came out of the agency, you know, surely uh, sort of CD, ECD'd it, and guys, you know, wrote all the work, and they deserve everything, you know, all the credit completely. Brilliant. But yeah, still proud that it, you know, yeah. managed to work with a brand like that and get some great work out. It's great. So how, how did you get your relationship going with Spotify? Do you know what? I can't even remember. I can't remember. I think, I mean, a lot of these brands now, they, they do have a sort of roster of agencies. I'm not quite sure how that one came in, to be honest. Sean probably will know more than me. Yeah. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell Steve to cut here because I'm just going to take a minute to call up the Spotify playlist that you made. Um, oh, yeah. And... I'm going to have to, I've forgotten what your Spotify name is because that's how I found it. Is there should be a link? It is Dog Boy Not 6900. 6900. Should be a link on your email as well. It's right here. Okay. And we're back, Steve. Cut back in. Um, so you, while we're on the Spotify thing, you made this playlist for us. Um, yeah. of your uh, top tracks. Um, talk us through it one at a time. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it, a top 10? And, I, you know, I really love music so much. Um, you know, when I was a, you know, my parents had a brilliant record collection growing up, so I was exposed to lots of different music. You know, most, I guess, 70% of their collection was jazz, but... You know, they had everything. You know, they had the Stones, the Beatles, lots of Stevie Wonder, you yeah. know, all sorts of stuff, really. So, yeah, so I was exposed to an awful lot of music when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I guess the, when I was thinking of the top ten, like Give Me Shelter, the Stone, I'm a massive Stones fan, and Give Me Shelter is easily my number one of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it just stands out for me, and not just as a top Stones track, but it's just the, the best song ever ever been written. No opinion. one's ever quite done an intro like that, have they? It's just haunting. It's amazing. And 
you know, I think also it was a period in time when it was 69, sort of ended the flower power thing. And they did a live show at the Altamont in the States and some Hell's Angels stabbed a fella and it just was moody. It was a bad time and it felt like, I don't know, it just captured that moment. And in a way, I quite like those sort of moody, dark places that music can go to. And I, I reckon that that song really did inspire sort of like Sabbath and, you know, it's a, it swung music in a different direction for me, that tune. Yeah, yeah it felt like a, an appropriate anthem for the end of the 60s. It is, yeah, that's what they say. I mean, they say that gig, that ultimate gig was kind of the end of it as a festival. And to me, that Give Me Shelter, you know, really captures the emotion of that moment as well, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, amazing song. And then, like, you know, to pick 10, a top, an all-time top 10, I, I was thinking, what are the tunes that I've played the most and I never, ever get sick of? Yeah. And one of these is like that for me, yeah. Yeah, all of these we've got, obviously, uh, Massive Attack. Um, oh, yeah. Just incredible. I mean, that is a, such an amazing song. I was sort of looking at these, thinking about these the other night as, as well, and I think a lot of these, it's about the production as well. Mm. On them. Mm. You know, Unfinished Sympathy is just an absolute, you know, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's like, you know, that is a modern piece of genius, I think. It's just yeah. incredible. And when you yeah. say the production, you're saying it's like a lot of these, it's not that you could take the song out of its context as a record and just have the words and the tune and it would still it wouldn't still have the same impact. You need it in that context. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean I, sort of what a producer brings to a band and a and a song and a piece of music is untold, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And so um but this list this list says, you know, obviously it goes back a long time. Um, but like you said, music's always been a very uh, central part of your life as a creative. But have you never been drawn to like create music? Was that never your field? Yeah, I'd love to, but I'm just not talented enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I play the guitar and, and drums, but you know, it's only really messing around. And I'm just, I'm tone deaf. I can't tune the guitar, so it's just not my natural talent at all. Yeah. You know, I love it and it's good fun, but. Yeah, yeah. Okay. you've got um, you got, you've got a pretty impressive drum kit in your office, is it? Who or why, haven't you? Yeah, that's not bad, that one. Yeah, that's Rebecca's, that's not mine. Oh, right. Good. Yeah, she's a lot better than me. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't comment on that, but I certainly hope so, based on the description of yourself you just gave. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> so it's um, so it's an important, it's an important thing for you. And was it one of these records was, I mean, it could have been Give Me Shelter, was there a record that when you were a teenager um, set the ball rolling and, and changed, felt like it changed your life? I, I mean, I don't think so, really. I think because I was exposed to so much music, I never really had that moment, I guess. The only one I can think of, you know, the only record I can think of that I don't think it changed my life, but it was a moment, and that was uh, Nirvana's Nevermind when that came out. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was working at Leo Burnett and I queued up outside Outpri Outprice in the morning or Tower Records or one of those shops, right? 
And I bought the LP and went back to the agency and there was a big all-staff agency meeting in the cinema next door, you know, a yearly thing that they used to do. And I didn't bother going to it. And I went into the agency and I had a record player and the whole agency was empty. And I just put that on and you just go, holy shit, that's... <laughs> That is a record and a half, isn't it? It's just, yeah. But I don't know if it changed my life. No. But. Yeah, that might be the thing that it, that's distinctive here because people I speak to, strangely, when in their case, music isn't the central aspect of their life, they're more likely to say that a single record did do something yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's understandable. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, back onto the um, back onto the, the the creative world. There's one thing that you mentioned to me that we've not uh, discussed was some some running you had with you two when you were doing work for Nokia. <laughs> it wasn't no, it wasn't a running. It was great. We yeah. So me and Ben used to run the Nokia Global account, and they used to do a lot of stuff for their music store and their music phones and what have you. And they had done. A deal with you too, you know, that allowed them to launch, do, do a sort of a project with them, launch a music phone with it. So, you know, we, this was about Christmas time, and I came back from the Christmas break, and the account guys went, "That you've got to write some ideas for you too. They've got a new album out. It's going to be a promotion to promote their album, our new album." with uh, a new Nokia music phone. And you've got a week to write the ideas and then you've got to go to Dublin and present your work to you too. <laughs> so that was a pretty mad experience, yeah. It was fun, but Bono was amazing, you know. Really good, really receptive to, to you know, marketing and advertising and technology. You know, you can sort of tell that the band were always, you know, they've always had an eye on that. You know, they're hugely, you know, smart when it comes to stuff like that. They weren't some um, anti-establishment, anti-technology, anti... We're just rock and rollers. Obviously, it's you too, isn't it? Uh, far from it. You know, I think they, you know, almost the opposite in a way. Larry, the drummer, he was very suspicious. And he was the guy, he, I think he set the band up, didn't he, Larry? So yeah. they've, um, yeah, he was just sat at the end of the table and frowned at me a lot. And <laughs> But uh, I don't know, I guess they sent me as well because I look like what I do. So I had the most chance of connecting with them. But <laughs> well, you mean because because you looked like that, that term that you loathe, yeah. the rock star? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a bit of a rock star cliche looking, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was a shame it never worked out because the deal fell through. And the, the actual idea that we presented to them that they liked was, you know, I said, look, you're a band that's famous for huge stadium gigs, and you know what if we you know, shot a video for you, but it's in the most confined possible space, but it's broadcast live on all these phones. So it, it was a time when streaming really just started kicking off and it made it possible. And uh, yeah, he, oh, I really like that idea. I thought it would have been fun to make. But I, I also... Know, that that uh, I, Cure video. 
uh, close to me that um, Tim Pope shot of the cure in a wardrobe. You know, we're sort of thinking of something like that, really confined right. space. And yeah, but it's broadcast in an epic way. I, I also suspect it was one of those ideas that was a bit too advanced for its time because we're talking about Nokia. So obviously this is before the smartphone revolution. So the idea of live streaming a video whilst achievable was still like very, very difficult with the technology that you had available. Yeah, it was, it was at the time when it was just possible. And Nokia always, yeah, they, they embraced new technology like that. It's a shame they didn't really jump on the smartphone thing enough, to be honest. They, they kind of frowned or dismissed Apple you know, and thought that they were, you know, just a, weren't, in, weren't a threat. At the Trying time. to, yeah, get into a market that wasn't theirs. Because Nokia had 40% of the global mobile market at that time. It's huge. You know, yeah. and Apple were like 1% or something. So, but yeah, that, that time changed, didn't it? Oh, yeah, the next 10 years did really uh, do a number on, well, for Apple, what I imagine they're probably now the 40% as if not more, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that idea with you two it fell through, and then but it turned out all right because we ended up shooting with the dead weather, which was amazing. You know, in a recording studio at the what was it, hospital club in Soho, they got a mad recording studio downstairs, and it's amazing. And you know, I kind of had a whole day of the dead weather performing to me. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And so mad. Uh, Sophie Muller was a legendary promo director shot it. And, and then that was broadcast live. So we did it with them. You know, it's good fun. Amazing. Yeah. And so um, on to, on the idea that um, I just want to briefly want to sort of pry that open a bit more that when you're talking about um, uh, hating things being referred to as rock star when they aren't. Because when I spoke to Sean for having a gas, he said, uh, oh, it's great. I don't know if you saw it. He said, it's great going out with Matt because everyone thinks you're with an actual rock star. They probably, <laughs> probably think you're Iggy Pop or something, but they, they're just too shy to ask. No, no, sometimes I do get asked. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you don't like the term, I understand, being applied to just anyone. No, I mean, to admit, like rock stars, to me, right, they are just incredible, gifted, talented. You know, Iggy Pop, oh God, I mean, what he's done and achieved, and it's, and he's, you know, they're almost immortal, aren't they, these guys? They just, they shouldn't be alive. So, I don't know, you can't apply that term to anyone else who <laughs> doesn't, you know, yeah. sort of create the things that they do and can do. Yeah. I, I, I had my time as a, as a teenager and, you know, probably longer into my twenties than I'd care to admit of, 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 you know, wanting to be one of those people and wanting that kind of a lifestyle. But I also think that um, it's for the chosen few and it really does have its pitfalls. You know, mostly they tend to um, run into some trouble that you wouldn't recommend you know, like obviously Iggy had uh, all of his trouble with heroin and um, well, the same with a lot of them. You look at the top bands of all time, someone usually dies, the Beatles, Queen, Stones, Zep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, it's a mad world. 
I think, um, to me, I think musicians sort of have to go to a dark place to write brilliant stuff, you know. Yeah. I think that's where the best music comes from and probably always has, you know, that's blues really, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of about struggle and expression of, you know, how you're feeling and what have you, yeah. Do you keep uh, do you keep your ear to the ground with what's emerging now in the hip hop world, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit disillusioned with rock music at the moment, but I've got you know, I've kind of got really into the dance stuff to be honest. And, right. Yeah, you know, it's a, not. It doesn't quite have the sort of longevity of a great rock track, but there's so much of it being produced. I sort of get obsessed with a tune one week and then you get sick of it after a week, but that's all right because there's something else coming along. Yeah. You know, it's got a different kind of thing. You have a different relationship with that sort of music, but I find it more exciting for sure. You know, yeah. Rock stuff around now. Yeah, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? There's that in the, in the early parts of the last, I suppose, still this decade, 2011, 12, there was a lot of noise going on about is there any future for guitar-based music or, uh, you know, and some people would say, well, it's just, it's had a long period of, let's call it dominance, and now yeah. it's uh, on the back foot. So it's just adjusting to this new landscape of yeah. just becoming part of the landscape. But yeah, I know what you mean. There's not, yeah. there's not much in the way of guitar music uh, proper that isn't also fused with something else at, at the moment. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think a lot of... When new genres of music come through, often it's always connected with culture, isn't it? And that's often a backlash with what went before. You know, it's usually always that, isn't it? It's rebelling against, you know, what is popular at the time. And I wonder if music's so fragmented now, there isn't that one vocal thing to backlash against in a way. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I wondered... You know, because in the 90s, you know, when I was 20-odd, that was just the most amazing time for music because you had the great guitar bands, you had the American stuff, you know, the Nirvanas and Seattle stuff, and then you had the Britpop thing over here, you had the dance thing over here, you had the hip-hop thing, Run DMC and Public Enemy and Left Field Underworld, all of this stuff, and it was like, we used to go to clubs and they'd play all of it. No, which is great. You know, I love that. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing a time where there were a few genres, but they all had uh, they all had a very robust kind of presence. Whereas, yeah. the, and those they, they were very present in the mainstream. Whereas now, anyone can listen to anything, so not much gets any attention at all. Yeah, yeah that's it. I mean, the Reading Festival during that period in Glastonbury. It's like holy shit. You know, it's like. You know, literally, it would year after year, it'd be Run DMC, Pulp, Blur. You know, I saw Rage Against the Machine at, at, at Glastonbury. You just go, oh, God. It's brilliant. Brilliant bands. What year were you there? Oh, God. I, I don't know. What was that? Rage. I know it's, it would have been mid-90s, I guess. Maybe... Maybe. If it was 94, then you were there with um, Gary, who... Because... Uh, that was the year that Johnny Cash was on the legend stage. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been. That's I'm so fucking old. The first time I went to Glastonbury, there was no fence around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been there yeah. for 20 years now, hasn't it? Or something. Yeah. 
Uh, and then the next year we went and there was a six-foot fence and we jumped over that. The next year, the fence went up to about 12 foot and we, these kids had dug a tunnel under the fence and you came up in their tent and you paid them a fiver and you was here. Genius. <laughs> brilliant, yeah. Like the Great Escape or something. The double fences and a 12 foot fucking no man's land with guard dogs and that was, yeah, you had to start buying tickets then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been, um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to get get in uh, three times in the last decade. And I don't mean get in over the fence. I mean, actually get a ticket because that's the new, that's yeah. the new challenge is how the hell do you get a ticket? Everyone just yeah. logs on and refresh, refresh, refresh. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it is like the, the, it is like a military base around the edge now and patrols and yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. When was last, when was last time you went? Fuck. I went, nah, not for a long time. I haven't been in the past. I don't know. 15 years, maybe. No. maybe. Yeah. 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 Did you get, did you get out to much live music before COVID? Uh, no. What did I say? I saw the Super Suckers at 100 Club. <laughs> that was quite good fun. Uh, what else did I see? No, I mean, I haven't been going to enough live music. You know, I do think it's massively important for people to, to support these live venues, you know. You know, it's incredible. I do miss it. You know, I was looking at some live stuff. I do an Instagram thing called JCDC, where it's all uh, tracks and it's all around religion and music. So any any song with Jesus lyrics in, you know, or connected to religion. And, you know, I was looking at some spirit, spiritualized, Spaceman 3 did a, walk, a song called Walking with Jesus. And I was looking at some of their live performances and they're just an incredible band and you know it really made me miss music you know? yeah I suspect I, there's going to be a, a, a renewed interest when the shutters lift and they say you can congregate again yeah I hope so yeah 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 what's yeah. the um, what's the thing that's uh, what's the thing you've missed the most during this lockdown period or this strange era of history we're living through uh, I mean, going to the pub, really, isn't it? It's like <laughs> simple stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, what, let me just look, given, given the game away, looking at my prepared questions, just in case of anything we haven't <laughs> covered. My prepared answers, that's all right. <laughs> oh, well, that, that, was, that was the thing. It was um, the one thing we haven't covered. Interesting. Uh, music choices in commercials. So there's, there's one... I suppose we've covered it with the U2 thing, which is, uh, is there a music choice that you put forward to a client and you were so wedded to it, you really wanted it to pass and the client didn't want it? I don't think so. But really, I would never, ever um, put forward a track that I really, really love. You know, because <laughs> I think, it, you know, some tunes and songs, they're just not... I don't know, in a way, I do find advertising a little bit dirty when it comes to the creative world. And, you know, yeah, I think Stern, to, to put a song that is epic, like any of those top 10 songs, I'd never, ever put onto a commercial for me. I mean, many of them you wouldn't be able to afford, but <laughs> by an, I, I, I get where you're yeah. coming from. That's interesting, actually. I, I was chatting to... Um, a few people on this and there's this kind of debate that goes 
on about obviously the Beatles and the Stones are forever going to be compared. And yeah. um, one thing that's been said is that the Stones have done better with their legacy than the Beatles. So the Beatles had a bigger impact maybe at the time, but the Stones yeah. have just had a better long term brand. Yeah, I guess that's because they're all together though. Yeah. Yeah. Still alive. <clears throat> yeah. Have you seen the Stones recently? I saw them, I think they played at the, Olymp the, what was it, the Olympic Stadium. I think that was the last time. But I hadn't, you know, throughout my life, I, I hadn't seen them until probably, they played at Hyde Park about five years ago, I think. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, about seven years ago, that one, yeah. Yeah, that was the first time that I saw them. Yeah. And it was, I don't know, I, I could obviously I could have done, but I was kind of really really nervous about seeing them because they're so important to me. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like you know I remember before that show I was in the pub with some mates and I was shaking and it felt like my wedding day, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like oh shit are they gonna what are they gonna are they gonna turn up are they gonna be great you know it was, yeah I felt nervous about it and yeah it's weird. They were absolutely amazing. Well, of course, yeah. I get. I, th maybe there's this thing as, uh, as well of if you've obviously you've always been around in your life. The Stones have always been around. Yeah. You can end up thinking, "I'll get around to seeing them one day." And people yeah. often miss things like that, like people never saw the Smiths or you know Queen yeah. for that reason. Bowie was the one. I never saw Bowie. Absolutely gutted about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one regret in life, that is. How do you feel about the, 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 the way he went out, that last album, that, that era? Yeah, it's not bad, that album. It's got some interesting stuff on it. Yeah. yeah. Best Bowie Best, album? Uh, Best Bowie. Best, yeah. Uh, Ziggy Stardust, and all the, uh, what's the first one? Yeah, Ziggy Stardust, and I think it's just. Yeah. Songs on that. Yeah, your Diamond Dogs is one for me. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my mum and mum and dad had all those records, you know, when I was a kid. So, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those where I mean, that, that's an enviable person to be for a creative because you know most people, if they had that many phases and different looks, you'd kind of think, oh, like they can't decide who they want to be. But for some reason, with Bowie, you just have the confidence to work. It's like this is how I am now. Yeah, totally. He. No, I think you know some bands just get stuck in their own, their thing, don't they? And you just go, you got to refresh yourself. You know, I think Primal Scream have done pretty well doing that. They've had some fucking well diverse albums. You know, they're one of my also one of my huge, you know, hugely influential bands for me, and, and you know, I've seen them many many times. Yeah. yeah. So I imagine. Uh, that was probably the Glastonbury that you uh, could have done with being at where it was Primal and then the Rolling Stones on Saturday night. Yeah, right. That would have been a good one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I missed out on tickets on that one though, so there's no, uh, <laughs> no yeah. beating anyone up about that. But yeah, cool. Right, well, I know you're, um, you're a busy guy and you're preparing yeah. for a holiday. So, um, yeah. so thanks for chatting and obviously hope we can, um, we can uh, see you in London again whenever the, uh, the time seems right. Hopefully sometime before the end of the yeah. year, maybe not. Yeah.